You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Boston Loose Baseball, Episode 59. Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer on your beloved Nationals. We're going to be joined by one of the Nationals' voices, Dave Jagler, who calls games with Charlie Slows and was on the call in Houston throughout the 2019 World Series when the Nats went 4-0 and in Houston where they were this week. I had the opportunity to reminisce with Jags about some of his big calls in the World Series. You'll hear that interview on BLB. We've also got some thoughts on Davey Martinez going off on umpires and a new pitch for Josiah Gray. All coming up here on episode 59, and it starts right now. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. This is episode 59 of Bustin' Loose Baseball. I'm Grant. He's Toby. Toby, your baseball odyssey continues. I think you're closing in on trip to Wrigley, right? I am tomorrow night, or tomorrow afternoon, I should say, headed out to see the O's take on the Cubs out of Wrigley. So I love Wrigley Field. Of the old, old, old ballparks, Fenway was awesome because it was iconic. I did the tour, and, and you know you get the, the nostalgia and, and just that historic feeling like you're in a museum, which is cool. But I thought the ballpark itself, from the standpoint of like watching the game and, and being there, left a lot to be desired. I was not that big of a fan of Fenway. It's very small. Uh, there's no room in the the concourse. The the seats are like facing away from home. They're basically, your your the back of your head is to home plate in certain seats. I loved Wrigley though. I think Wrigley has aged well. The renovations have been awesome. Like I love what they've done with it. To me, it's still a top ten ballpark in baseball. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't been able to go down there. I was scheduled to go down there a couple years ago, but then we had some family matters, so I wasn't able to make it to the ball game. So it'll be on my first time at the friendly confines, and I'm pretty excited about it. Excited to see. Some of the history, you know, you know, being out here in Wisconsin, how I felt at Lambeau Field, kind of seeing some of the mystique and you see the names around there. I can only imagine what it's going to be like at Wrigley Field, just thinking about the guys that have played there throughout the years and all the history that's been a part of Wrigley Field. Yeah, I think you'll dig it. All right. So a couple of things to get into here on Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 59. Why don't we start with last night's Davey Martinez frustration? So yet again in Houston, the Nats are playing the Astros. And the Trey Turner rule uh, with a base runner digging down the line, a throw from a catcher to a first baseman is offline because of where the runner is. And despite this being a different situation than the one that went against the Nationals in the World Series, the result was the same, which was that the Nats got screwed. It just feels like, and we've seen this four, five, six times. I mean, in fact, the, the interview people here I did with Dave Jagler, we go into that Trey Turner play and he references, this is before the series started, how five or six times since then, 
Like he, he has seen this call and he still doesn't really understand what is supposed to be called. He just knows that it has gone against the nationals almost every time. And that's why Davey was so livid. I mean, it, it's very, very funny that every single time this play comes up, whatever the ruling is, whichever the crew is, however they perceive it, it almost certainly has gone against the nationals. At this point, I'm not exactly sure how it is supposed to be ruled. Like I, I really don't understand it because you'd think that the nationals would understand, but it, it seems like the ruling never really matters what the actual correct rule is. It's just going to be against the nationals, whether it's the team that's fielding it, whether the nationals are the base runners, it doesn't really matter. And you know, you look at just pictures of where Trey Turner was running down the line as opposed to where the Astros were last night. And the Astros dude is on the grass. And Trey Turner was, if anything, barely on the grass. And it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense at this point with the interference. I don't understand the 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 way the rule is supposed to be laid out and how it's supposed to be officiated. I don't understand it. And it seems like every single time it goes against the Nationals, it's very frustrating at this point, and I love the fact that Davey Martinez decided to show up with receipts. He's like, you know what? I am not going to let this continue on. If it means I get fined, if it means I get suspended, I do not care. I am done with this call, and I'm glad that he decided to go into the press conference and do that after the game. Yeah, he's going to get fined a whole lot. I mean, you're not really supposed to challenge the umpires as much as he did, obviously. I don't think I've ever even seen a manager bring receipts in terms of a still photo. Like he goes into his office and I'm sure on his own prints off the picture or maybe, you know, Kyle Brostowitz, the PR maven with, with the nationals, you know, gave it to him not to go to the press conference with, but just to show him, Hey, here's what we saw upstairs. And he takes it with him into the presser. I, I'm not really sure how the, the specifics happened, but I don't think I've ever seen that. Like the last time I saw in a press conference, like documents being used, top of my head was like when Al Davis did that creepy press conference with the Raiders with Lane Kiffin, where he was like reading like documents on an overhead in a poorly lit room. It was just so funny that Davey basically was like, I I am so tired of this. And he did the dramatic like tossing of the paper. Like David Letterman used to throw his, his blue card off toward the camera where he's like, I'm over it. He he showed his evidence and then he tossed the paper to the side, but I get his frustration. and, And I actually, at times get annoyed with Davey for not doing enough of what that was last night. Like I know that this is a losing season. It's a bad team that this is a rebuild, whatever. I need you to stick up for your guys. I I need you to act like every at bat and every inning matters a ton. And I know it matters a lot to Davey, but I mean, how many times have we seen the Nats get screwed on bad calls at the plate balls and strikes? There was a game, you know, a couple weeks ago where Lane Thomas got rung up on like two straight at bats when he had a hitting streak going, I'm pretty sure. Um, and, and he got called out on consecutive at bats that, you know, on pitches that were like eight inches off the plate. It looked like I was going to bring that up real quick. Like Davey, where are you, man? Like go throw a fit, go kick dirt, go get ejected. And he rarely does. Uh, but I just thought last night was great. It was like, he reached his melting point and he was livid. Well, and this is the second time that we've seen him get frustrated in a post game presser. You mentioned the Lane Thomas thing and, I was at that ball game, and after the game, he was being asked about it. Bobby Blanco of Madison asked him, like, hey, man, some tough calls there for Lane Thomas. And Davey immediately said, no, they weren't tough calls. Let's be honest here. They were horrible. They were horrible calls. And so it's the second time, really, we've seen Davey do that. I don't know if it's 
you know, his heart thing. So he doesn't want to get out of the dugout and get a little too fired up on the field. You know, he saw you saw the frustration at the end of last night's game, but obviously there's not a whole lot he can do in that situation after the game's basically been decided. But I would like to see a little more on-field frustration, maybe get ejected like you were saying, go after a couple guys. But, you know, I don't mind seeing some of this frustration post-game too. It's pretty fun to see. It's pretty pretty cool to see Davey get fired up like that. Yeah, I know that Aaron Boone sometimes gets dragged by the New York media for, you know, how often he throws fits and gets angry. But I got to be honest, like a little more of that. There's probably a somewhere the fader can go between Davey, who almost never goes out there and screams, and Boone, who it's almost like you expect it now anytime his team's getting bad calls against them. Uh, but I, I just I would file last night, which was my favorite Davey moment in a couple of years into I don't know if it'd be as Mount Rushmore. I don't know if this is an important enough sequence or season for that. But like it was certainly one of my high watermarks in terms of my appreciation for and my my passion and pride I had in Davey being the manager of the ball club. Like I felt really good about what he did. And there will be people that disagree or think he was wrong. And and for the record, I don't think last night was about the one play or the one call or that one um you know ruling, so to speak. Like this keeps happening and there is no rhyme or reason. It's like the catch in football. Is it a catch? Is it not a catch? Or goalie interference in hockey. Like, I think his point is we now don't know what is and is not okay. You have told us we were wrong when the player was at first base, like with his foot on the bag. Last night, same situation. You said basically, hey, he was already at the bag, so uh, he was safe. Same thing that happened to Trey Turner, but it was against us then. And I think his disdain for this rule is the inconsistency, the fact that each umpire seems to see it differently. And and if you heard what he was saying, I, I think it's more about, like, maybe not that one call. I mean, I think he knows and thinks the call was wrong, obviously. But he said, get get it together, like fix this. His point is, we can't not know how this is going to be ruled. Like if, if we look at something and 29 other teams do and we all come up with different opinions, we need to do something different. And I think he's spot on. I don't know how or when they get to this. But in, in the past, Toby, think about it. Remember when there was like controversy on, on the new rule at second base? I think it was a few years ago. I, I don't remember the specifics, but it was something like, you know, you couldn't slide uh, late and try to break up plays. And and they'd gotten rid of the neighborhood play. So now the, the uh, infielder had to be on the bag. And we had a quick injury or two and collisions. And, and I remember, like, baseball didn't wait. They just said, okay. Like, this became a huge national story. Teams are angry. Like, we need to do something. And they, they in season, just kind of from behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz came out and said, here's what we're doing. I think this might be on that level. I mean, it certainly is from a national standpoint, just because it seems like they're like 0 for 7 on these over the last few years. Well, and to Davey's credit, like if you're trying to get this rule changed, showing up with a picture at your press conference and just going after the umpire and calling horrible, that's the way to go about it. I mean, at this point, it's understandable why he's frustrated. I don't Honestly, we cover the Nationals. You know, we check out National Baseball as much as we can, but... Like, I, I don't see this happen as much in other games, but it seems like every time it happens in a Nationals game, it screws the Nationals. So I understand his frustration. Maybe it's a bigger issue all throughout baseball, or maybe it's just a Nationals issue. Either way, though, you'd love to see it fixed. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution. 
that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Long gone! On to Josiah Gray. He did give up four runs yesterday, uh, two in the first inning on a double down the line when he was in a 1-2 count. Uh, So those are two of the four he gave up, and then he had two solo home runs. So basically it was three pitches that the Astros got the better of him on in a start in which uh, he ended up throwing the seven innings. Now, this is one of my frustrations with Davey that I've had for a long time. Uh, I would have thrown him for an eighth inning. Uh, we're in the middle of the season here. He was at like 95 pitches. I know most people think that's crazy. He doesn't need to finish the inning. You know, if it's he doesn't need to get the 115 pitches, but who knows? He comes out, he gets two outs and six pitches. And now at 101, he's on the precipice of finishing finishing an eighth inning that does one, two things. Number one, you have a bad bullpen that you're trying to stay off of your B and C bullpen. It, it takes an inning away from that group in the underbelly of this bullpen, the Jordan Weems group who actually threw well last night in an inning in a strikeout on top of that though. I, I think it's big for a guy to be able to say, I went eight innings for a young starter in his mid twenties. And I thought last night was a night, you know, in the mid nineties where at least he could have started, the eighth, which would have been a big deal. Let's say he goes seven and a third and you go to the pen then. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen that. You know, Davey and I just kind of disagree. That there's just plenty of times where at five innings and 83 pitches or six innings and, you know, 89 pitches or something, like these guys are, you know, 92 pitches, let's say. They're, they're done for the night where I would just be pushing the accelerator just a tad, um, not redlining it in a season that doesn't really matter. But I, I think there's a big gap between what they're doing and kind of clipping and redlining, so to speak, but six hits, four runs. I thought the outing, you know, we've said so often with Josiah Gray that he's actually probably not been as good as his numbers. And last night may have been the opposite. I know it's kind of funny to say, cause he gave up a couple of homers, but to go seven innings and only give up six hits was a big deal. He didn't walk anybody. You know, you look at his recent starts, he's walked five or six here or there. And I mean, it's been too many walks over and over. No walks. He was in the strike zone. Like, I will take that every single time, and I'll hope he makes a better pitch one-two and, and doesn't hang up, you know, an off-speed pitch up in the zone uh, against um, Abreu in the first inning. And now you're talking about seven innings, two runs maybe with a couple of solo jobbers. So I, I kind of liked what I saw from Josiah Gray. Yeah, I was encouraged. I think the the thing that stands out right away is seven innings. He hadn't gone seven innings since he went – 
seven innings back to back last month, basically the the tenth of May and then the sixteenth of May. So he'd had four outings in between that he'd barely gotten to the fifth inning, had one where he got an out in the sixth, but he hadn't had any length. So seeing him immediately get into the the seventh inning and finish it off, that was encouraging. The one thing that I thought was interesting, and I saw that Andrew Golden pointed it out of the post, is that Josiah Gray is now throwing a sweeper. And he'd thrown a couple of those in his last start against Atlanta, only four of them. But then in last night's start against Houston, he threw 26 of them, and he threw so many that he outnumbered his slider 26 to 20. And usually he throws that slider quite a bit. And it's noticeable with Gray because if you watch his pitch shapes, his slider is interesting in that it doesn't slide a whole lot, Grant. It moves like two inches. If you look last night, the max horizontal movement on his slider was seven inches. The minimum was one. His average movement on a slider horizontally is two inches. The sweeper averaged 10 inches. So that's a big difference. And honestly, a sweeper looks more like a regular slider from other guys I I'm interested to see how he tries to mix this in with his pitch mix. You know, he's got that cutter, he's got the slider, he's got this sweeper. Now I think that might be able to help him, especially against righties to have a pitch that actually goes off the plate away to right-handed batters. I'm excited to see if he can continue to control this pitch, command it and work on striking guys out with it. I think this could be a really valuable tool for him. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I'd like to ask him about this, you know, when we get an opportunity to, but uh, his slider has been outstanding at times in his career. I mean, he's had some of the best swing and miss rates on that pitch, you know, of any pitcher in baseball on their slider in the last couple of years. There was a stat after an early season start where he had 20 swings and misses, and I think the majority of them were on the slider, where it was like him and DeGrom and, and Corbin Burns, I think it was, and like a couple other guys who had had like that good a rate on the slider. But to your point, recently it's it's not sliding as much. Uh, the horizontal break hasn't been the same. It's not fooling people, and and too many of them are kind of hanging and feel like cement mixers in the middle of the plate. I don't know if this is an adjustment to that or because he's been working on the sweeper. I don't really know how we got here, but I'm looking forward to hearing more about it because, to your point, you know, if you're looking at, like, pitch variations, he theoretically threw six pitches last night in the game. Uh, he threw a sinker, so like a two-seam fastball, he threw the sweeper and the slider. He threw a four-seam fastball. Then he still has his cutter, which he threw five times, which, you know, is almost, you know, on, on when the slider's not moving a ton, is, is not all that different. It's a little bit firmer. It's like 89, the slider's 86. And then he threw a couple curveballs. And he's almost tabled the curveball, which is interesting. I mean, at times, that's also been a good pitch for him. So this is clearly a work in progress in terms of, like what he feels good about, what he doesn't. You know, maybe he's one of these cerebral guys who's just always going to be tinkering and 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 seeing where what works and what doesn't on a given night. But 95 pitches, he, he was kind of in the lab, so to speak, last night. And I thought the sweeper carried him at times during the start. Yeah, I mean, he was throwing it quite a bit. He was getting guys out. There was an at-bat, I believe, in the second inning against Altuve. Maybe it was the third inning. And he threw them all sweepers, was able to get them out. And that's where I think it'll be most effective, him throwing it to right-handed batters. Because his slider, even when it's at his best, doesn't slide a ton. It, it's kind of subtle. And I think that's how he goes about his business. You know, we talk about him versus Gore. And Gore's stuff is just so good that he gets swings and misses. And he can strike guys out by living in the zone. Gray doesn't have that as much. 
but I'm interested to see if he can continue using the sweeper, something that breaks much more than what a slider usually does against right-handed batters, get some swings and misses, maybe increase some of those strikeout numbers and get some weak contact. I think that this could be a really valuable pitch for him. And it's cool to see because people sometimes you see on Twitter, what in the world does Jim Hickey even do? Well, apparently he's working with Josiah Gray on new pitches and figuring out what his best pitch mix is. So I'm interested to see how he continues to develop the rest of the season. And if, you know, maybe he tries to add another pitch or he starts mixing in more of the cutter again or whatever the case may be. I'm interested to see what Gray does the rest of the year. You're going to hear from Dave Jagler, who I caught up with to reminisce about the 2019 World Series. Nats are back in Houston where they won games one and two and six and seven and all four of the games that they won in that World Series coming up in just a moment. Uh, Just a quick note on the minor leagues, though. I saw MLB.com's Pipeline crew did a piece with one prospect from last year's draft classes for every team that's off to a fast start. The national that they accentuated was Jake Bennett, the lefty from Oklahoma, the 2022 second-round pick, who uh, was given, I thought, a pretty easy assignment to begin in Fredericksburg, and he dominated. I mean, he probably should have been in Wilmington to begin, but 1.93 ERA, 54 strikeouts, eight walks, and 42 innings. Uh, bumped up to high A Wilmington, and last Tuesday threw really, really well in his first start. One Ernie, uh, eight strikeouts, and five innings. The, the changeup is outstanding. Uh, maybe Bennett's best pitch. Uh, really, really good against right-handers. They have a 508 OPS against him through 10 starts, and... Now, I think this is a guy that until he gets to the certainly double A, maybe triple A levels is going to have a lot of success in the minors. He's a pretty advanced college pitcher, uh, but so far, very, very good results for him. And a guy that I thought we could highlight really quickly. Yeah. Hopefully he can continue. Yeah, sorry. Hopefully he can continue this. I don't know what it is. I came out to Wisconsin and I forgot how to talk, but hopefully he can continue this. And Blame you know, Wisconsin, it's, one of, though. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you see the critics and they're like, well, of course he should be dominating. It's like, I'd rather at least be continuing to talk about this guy dominating at the lower levels than not dominating. So hopefully he can continue to pitch well in the lower levels. We can see him advance through the system, kind of like Cole Henry, where he advanced pretty quickly through. Hopefully he can do the same thing and hopefully we can see him in the bigs pretty soon. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, Dave Jagler, as promised, one of the voices of Nationals baseball. Caught up with him this week. Reminisced about the World Series run. Now, welcome on to the show, the great Dave Jagler, one of the voices of Nats baseball with Charlie Slows night in and night out here on the fan. Jags, it feels like just yesterday I was sitting behind you in the booth scarfing down some chocolate chip cookies 
while you and ja- uh, you and uh, Charlie were working hard and calling winning baseball in the World Series in Houston. October 30, 2019. That's, uh, it just seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Nothing's happened since then. Very similar roster the Nats are taking with yeah. them to Houston today. Yeah, very, very much so, and, and so much on the line. But, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to believe it's our first time back. The Astros were in, in D.C. last year for a three-game series, but uh, this is our first visit back to Houston since that uh, franchise first. And who should be the pitcher tonight? But the winning pitcher on October 30th, Patrick Corbin, he's going to be on the hill tonight in the first inning instead of the sixth, seventh, and eighth innings. Although maybe he'll make it to the sixth, seventh, and eighth. We hope so. Pretty amazing. Yeah, he's the the lone soldier essentially on the roster at this point from that World, yeah. World Series team with the World Series MVP Steven Strasburg. We got the news obviously last week. It's unlikely we're going to see him again. But when you look back, I mean, they went four and zero on the road in that series. I still remember. I fly back to DC. They're up two zero, and I had bought tickets, uh, four seats to each of those three games, three, four, and five. And I thought. All right, they're not going to sweep the Astros, but there's a chance they could win this thing in five and not go back to Houston. I don't think anyone thought they'd be going back to Houston down 3-2, and the idea that if that happened, they would still win the right. thing in seven was just, I mean, you, you can't write that script. Crazy to think about how it all played out. Right, well, because it's, it's the only best-of-seven series in any sport that has played out like that. We've never seen it happen in the NBA or the NHL, and certainly not in Major League Baseball where the road team has won all seven games in a seven-game series. I mean, you figure after the Nationals win two, they have the momentum coming home. But then once Houston wins three, four, and five, I remember coming back here for the, the second you know, the second group of two games here, and uh, I think everyone here felt like it was going to be a coronation. It was going to be the Astros' second championship in three years, and it was just a matter of whether it was going to be game six or game seven. And they felt like going into game six, it would be that night. And they had the lead in both games, and it, and it never happened. So... Um, it, it was, it's truly remarkable to think of it, but it's, it's kind of cool in, in hindsight, how it played out. It didn't feel great having to get back on that plane after the Astros really dominated those three games. But when you look back on it, it, it made the championship even a little more special, how they had to do it and what they overcame to accomplish it. I want to go through some of the, the games in Houston as the Nats are back at the Astros for the first time since the world series, Dave Jagler here on Grant and Danny. So just kind of walk back through memory lane with me, but Game one, some things that I remember and just jump out at me. So I remember Juan Soto and Ryan Zimmerman both hit homers. The Zim homer, even though it was much more pedestrian than the Soto homer, which probably landed like an hour ago off of Garrett Cole. The, the one I remember, though, that the, when Zim hit the homer off Garrett Cole, Cole was in a stretch, if I remember, where he just wasn't giving up hits or runs. Like, no one could score off the guy. And the way Danny and I described it on post game and the next day on the radio was when Zim, how fitting it was, by the way, to be the first national to deliver the run in the World Series, to deliver a run. They were down two to nothing. He got him back within one. It was as if Garrett Cole bled. You know, he felt human. And you said, well, I remember texting my wife before the game going, well, I don't like their chances tonight. No, then they're down two nothing. And I'm thinking, all right, well, maybe game two. And Zim hits the solo homer, and you go, why can't they get to this guy? And eventually, eight hits, five earned runs off Cole. Soto hits the huge home run. They end up winning that game five to four. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that, that Zim home run was big because it felt like the Astros were flexing their muscle. They were the heavy favorites going into the series. They put two runs up early on Max, and you figure, okay, ho-hum, they're going to go on and roll to a game one victory and set the tone for the series. But, yeah, that was, that was kind of like the uh, 
you mentioned that he he bled. That's like Ivan Drago and Rocky Four, right? <laughs> when they finally yeah. drew blood, and and there was obviously blood in the water, and and that was the coming out party nationally for Soto because uh, you mentioned the home run onto the railroad tracks in left center, but he had a big double uh, in that game, and I just remember in in, in the call saying like you know, Juan Soto, hello, you know, say hello to America, basically, because uh, we we knew how good he was, but he had not been on the national stage other than. The, the earlier performance, the home run against Kershaw, which which happened at like 1.30 in the morning Eastern time. But uh, it, for just for the national audience to get a look at how special he was, that home run kind of opened the eyes to, to what he was going to become. Yeah, three hits in that game with that homer. It's such a good point because I think the part of the romanticism that this fan base has of Soto is the 19 run, right? And it is... So many of those moments, starting with the big hit against the Brewers. Matter of fact, if you don't matter, uh, if you don't mind, J- Jags, let's play that uh, highlight Jags was just talking about with him calling the Soto homer. The 1-0. Swinging a fly ball, well hit to left field. Way back goes this one. It's got a chance. It's going, going, and long gone up onto the railroad tracks. Welcome to the World Series, Juan Soto. Oh, that was such a great moment. All right, game two. So the Nationals are up one nothing, and now they got Strauss on the hill. And he's, I mean, as we know now, he's got a sub one and a half ERA. He's one of the great playoff pitchers ever. He'd go on to win World Series MVP. But was correct me if I'm wrong. He gave up two runs in the first in that game. Was that when he was tipping pitches and someone told him about it? No, that that was Game Six. That was game later. Six okay. Was the, yeah, Game Six was the pitch tipping when when John Toscas, the video coordinator and the and the pitching coach at the time, Paul Menhart basically had to uh, had to con- confront him about it uh, that he was t- he was tipping and that's when he started squeezing uh, the, the glove yeah so that uh, th- that was actually in game six but in game two he did give up a, a, a couple early and then I just think I remember about that game uh, before I get to the game was I, th- I think that was the night that Danny Ruri ate about 5,000 calories that's true Literally every time I every time I looked back he had different food yes and was just scarfing it down and, and had the biggest uh, ice cream dish. I mean, it, it was literally like a, a seven scoop dish of ice cream at one point. And, and with the nationals coming back to Houston, I, I think they're, they're wary of that, but they might have extra food allotted for tonight <laughs> just in case that Danny were to show up. I mean, they, they, I think they're, they're scarred by what happened after that game two performance. Uh, a, anyway, that, that game, well, people don't believe um, me when I say this Jacks, cause Dan and Danny's done a great job. Like he works as he works out every day and he works really hard yeah. and he, he's gotten in pretty good shape. But he eats more than any person I've ever met. And that night, I remember he just couldn't stop eating. And I remember at one point, either you I don't know or if Charlie. Was nervous? Exactly. Yeah, was, That's what it was. One of you guys can. I met him. You know who it was? I think it was Bob Carpenter. Because Carp was in the booth just kind of chilling with us, too. And he's like, dude, he's like, what is the matter with you? And Danny literally looked up with like ice cream on his brow. And he was like, I- I'm so nervous. But he just couldn't stop eating. Every time, you know, you guys didn't have a place to sit, so we kind of let you hang out in the back of the booth there. And look, every time I turned around, he had something different that he was scarfing down. It was in, it was insane. I mean, this is, you know, I know they're, they're, they've got to feed the entire media corps for, for the United States of America and around the world covering the World Series, but leave some for somebody else, please. 12 runs um, and 14 hits in yeah. game two. What do you think? Uh, bigger well, number, 8,000 calories or, or the 12 runs that the Nats <laughs> scored that night? Definitely the 8,000 calories. Yeah. The, thing, the thing about that game that was kind of crazy is that I felt a little kind of premonition, like summoning in, in the – it was a 2-2 game. Strasburg gets through the sixth inning, 
and Ver- Verlander is still in the game, and Kurt Suzuki is coming to bat in the top of the seventh. I, I just kind of, I remember thinking, like, you know, he had good swings against him earlier in the game, and I just had a feeling that he was going to do some damage and might hit a home run. And so I said, Kurt Suzuki has never hit a home run in his postseason career. And on the very next pitch, he hit a home run to put him up 3-2, to two, and then the route was on. And, and they blew, blew the doors off the game and, and blew him out. Yeah, you uh, by had, the time it was finished. You had, like, one iconic call after another. You had the Howie moments and some really big stuff throughout. But to your point, yeah, that summoning of the Suzuki bomb, because it's so rare, like, with all due respect to Kurt Suzuki, who is my guy, he's not, you know, out here doing the tater trot a whole lot. Uh, let, let's see. I don't. I don't know if it's if they call if they pulled that part of the call, but let's hear what we got here on that. Kurt has never had a postseason home run. Here's the one zero. Swinging a long drive left does. field. He's got one now. Kurt Suzuki gives the Nationals the lead. That one above the Crawford boxes. Kurt Suzuki's first career postseason home run, and the Nationals lead the Astros three to two here in the seventh inning. What's funny about that game? So the box score reads twelve to three. It was not really a blowout. I mean, it was a 2-2 game into the seventh, and then they busted it yep. open in the seventh. But that game was nip and tuck for three hours, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, and that, that really opened the floodgates because uh, the Astros had made a couple errors. In the, they had a, a Bregman threw a ball away. They, they kind of collapsed completely in that seventh inning, and, and Suzuki was his home run opened that frame and opened the door. So it's a 2-0 series lead. I still remember... And in fact, I think this quote made it on the uh, that Nats DVD that they put out uh, that Major League Baseball did. But there were a lot of people expecting the Nats to sweep the Astros. And Dana and I just couldn't believe it. the phones were full going into Game Three with people talking about you know wanting to bring their brooms to the ballpark. And we kept saying like, "You guys sleep on how good this team is." I mean, yeah. this could Off easily be O right. two. And of course, three games here in DC, the twenty seven innings of baseball. Now Max is hurt, and they're down 3-2 going back to Houston. Yeah, I mean, and the funny, all, all three games were, were kind of you know, pedestrian ho-hum. I mean, there, there was never a whole lot going on. Like, they'd fall behind early. Uh, you know, a couple of the games, the Astros broke open late. I mean, they, they scored basically one run a game. There, were, there was not a lot to get excited about. As great as the crowds were for those games, it just kind of felt like, Oh boy, the, the Astros have—they've they, awoken the, the sleeping giant, and they were flexing their muscles. It, it was unfortunately was not very competitive. One thing I'm noticing is I'm pulling up some of these box scores. What a series Adam Eaton had, uh, who they acquired for Lucas Giolito, and obviously was integral in the playoff run. But he hit his second home run of the World yeah. Series yeah. in Game Six. In that game, Soto hit his fifth home run in what was a pretty legendary playoff run there, and uh, Anthony Rendon went deep. So that tells me then Game Six was not only. The Strasburg tip and pitches game. That's Davey getting ejected. Yep. Yeah. That that game, game six. You know, Adam. You know, you can't sleep on how important Adam Eaton was to that run. You're right. You you pick out the he had a big hit in the Cardinals series that uh, that kind of broke open one of those. Uh, I think that he had like a two run triple in, in one of the games in St. Louis. He was just he's the kind of guy that uh, when he was on your team you loved him. The other team he was kind of a pain in the neck because he just he was always in the middle of it and. He hit the, the first home run in the sixth inning. You know, Stra- again, Strasburg gives up two in the first. He's tipping. Then he shuts him down. But Verlander was kind of mowing him down. He gave up a run in the first inning. The Nationals had nothing going. But it was Eaton who hit the home run in that fifth inning to tie the game. And then the, the, the pivotal moment just a couple of batters later 
was when Soto hit the hit the moonshot to right center off Verlander, mm. and that's when he carried his bat down the line to first because Bregman. I remember watching Bregman in the first inning. He hit the bomb off Strasburg when he was tipping, and he carried his bat down to first. I'm going, is he going to run around the bases with his bat in his hand? And he finally dropped it basically when he got to first base. And so then Soto did the same thing. So I remember saying after Bregman hit the home run, I bet you everybody in the dugout saw that, and they're not, they're not pleased about it. Well, Soto answered it the proper way. He hit one 900 feet, and he carried his bat down and basically handed it to Tim Bogart, the first base coach. And then uh, – you know, that game was, again, nip and tuck, 3-2. to two. Strasburg uh, pitches into the ninth inning. They break it open with a couple in the seventh and a couple in the ninth. Uh, and the, the seventh inning was the Trey Turner play. Uh, they, they only scored two in that inning, but it felt like they were going to break the game open. But, of course, they called Turner out uh, for, quote-unquote, you know, violating the, 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 the 45-foot uh, you know, lane area, which I, I still don't understand. The, 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 I, I've seen that, that call so many times. And I, you can never convince me that that was the right judgment because to me he was through the bag and didn't impact the throw in any way. But however that happens, the, the, the call goes against him. And then immediately Rendon hits a home run uh, two batters later. So instead of that momentum shifting Houston's way, Rendon's home run kind of settled him in. And then Davey got, actually got ejected during the seventh inning stretch because uh, the, the umpire and crew chief came over and confronted him and said something that Davey didn't like. And that's when Davey, you know, totally lost his mind and went crazy. Yeah, he didn't think... get ejected, and he didn't get ejected in the moment of the call. He got ejected in the aftermath when the umpires came over, and and basically the the crew chief said something that that he didn't like, and Davey went off. Went and nuts. that's when he got ejected. He went, he, and that's when he got tossed. It, it was, it, you know, people think, well, maybe it happened right when the call happened. No, it actually happened after the inning was over, and it was right in the middle of the seventh inning stretch. Yeah, I'm going to take calls from listeners uh, next hour on th- their fondest moments and memories of, of the, the games in Houston during the World Series. But I think both of mine were in this game. Uh, the, the first is Soto bringing the bat to first. Because I, I don't know if you remember this narrative or, or if you bought into it at all, but there was a perception of the Nationals for several years that they weren't like tough enough. I, I don't know what the word would be, essentially. But I remember one of the guys that would – that called them out for this publicly was uh, Tim Hudson at one point. And, and basically the idea was that they I, well, didn't. Yeah, I, do, I do remember him saying that, yeah. Yeah, and it was like, oh, they don't have stones. We're not worried about the Nationals. And I just thought, like, Soto from day one kind of had what they'd been lacking. And it was a, I don't deal with your bleep kind of gear. <laughs> and when he hits that bomb to go up a run in the fifth, and he takes the bat all the way to first and drops it. And we're talking now. Game six of a World Series to try to pull even 3-3. Like, I thought that was the symbolism of, like, the organization kind of arriving through Soto as if to say, we don't take anybody's stuff. I, it just, it meant so much to me. I love that. And then the other moment, as you said, was the Rendon homer because people do forget that was right after the Trey ejection or, or the Trey play that led to the ejection. And it was so deflating because you thought they were about to, to score a bunch of runs and the inning changed yep. completely and it could have gone sideways if not for Rendon, who was so amazing that entire postseason coming up with this swing. Harris is 1-0. Swinging a high fly ball left field, sending Brantley back onto the warning track at the wall, looking up, and it is gone! Anthony Rendon puts it into the Crawford boxes, and the Nationals lead the ballgame 5-2 here in the seventh inning. Two of my favorite moments of the Houston trips in the World Series which and do you remember who? Did you hear the name, the name of who that was off of? 
That was off of Will Harris, who had been untouchable in the postseason, but as he joined the Nationals the, the following year in spring training, admitted that his arm was hanging. Like they, they'd, they had gone to the well one too many times, as it turned out, in Game 6, and they would go back to that well in Game 7. My favorite National ever, Will Harris. <laughs> I mean, I, I think exactly. he pitched like eight innings or, or less. I don't know. I, I don't know if he did 42 pitches here, but he is my favorite national ever because it was one night later in game seven when uh, Howie would greet him very unfavorably. But, uh, I mean, I, I guess the Howie swing is the answer. But in that game seven, not pictured, Rendon hit another home run early. Yeah. That was huge. They got well, no, no, no. Ren, no, Rendon's home run was actually in the seventh. They were down two to nothing. And Rendon's homer. Well, it wasn't that early. You're right. It was it was in the seventh. If you remember, Granky, and the funny thing is, you know, you can point to earlier Nationals postseason exits, and you can talk about when Matt Williams took out Jordan Zimmerman, or 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 some of Dusty's decisions in the game fives, you know, double switching Zim and Rendon out of the game against the Dodgers when they were trailing, so that Defoe would be the the final batter against Kershaw, and you know, not challenging the the backswing interference when Weeders threw the ball away against the Cubs. There were a lot of things that that didn't go the Nationals' way. But when you look back at Game 7 of that World Series, A.J. Hinch had kind of a plan mapped out that Greinke was going to go about four or five innings, and then he was going to go to you know, Presley or whoever and get the ball to Garrett Cole. But they didn't want to bring Garrett Cole in with a man on base. It's Game 7 of the World Series, and it's, has Garrett Cole never pitched with a man on base in his career? So Cole kept warming up in that game, and they never brought him in. Greinke pitched so well that he basically messed up their script. He, he pitches into the seventh inning. And the Nationals couldn't even get the ball past the pitcher. I mean, remember Greinke made like four or five plays on, on ground balls back. Oh to him? yeah, it was the only and contact. He, he had always he had always pitched great against the Nats, and he was pitching an incredible game. And so when Rendon hit the home run, he walked Soto, and then to finally get Greinke out of the game felt like an uplifting moment, kind of like the Giants felt when Jordan Zimmerman came out of the game in Game Two in 2014. Immediately they bring in Will Harris and then Howie Homers, and Cole never comes in the game. Even when they're down three to two, they don't bring Cole into the game. They bring in their their other relievers, you know, Joe Smith and Presley and Urquidy. And our, our man Adam Eaton had the big hit to separate that game, uh, the two run single in the ninth inning that really broke it open. And Cole never, never ended up pitching. So, kind of the managerial second guessing you can do that always seemed to go against the Nationals. Everything played out perfectly with how A.J. Hinch tried to manage that game for Houston. Oh, Hinch got destroyed. I remember being in that press conference after. They were killing him. 80 pitches, six and a third innings for Grenke of two-hit ball. 80 pitches, and they went to the pen. Thank God. And soon thereafter, Howie with the home run heard round the world. Oh, why don't we end the conversation that way? No balls and a strike. Outside target, Chirinos the pitch. Swing a line drive, slice down the right field line toward the corner. Springer back, looking up, and this one is gone. It hits the foul pole, and the Nationals lead. Howie Kendrick has done it again. A slicing two-run homer off the right field foul pole. Do you believe it, Howie Kendrick? Part two. I love, Danny and I were talking about this in a different context last week, but I love play-by-play calls where the, there's so much silence in the crowd that you hear the team screaming. And you can yep. hear the, the dugout behind you in that call, basically. And the players, because the ballpark is that quiet, that road silence is my favorite sound in sports. Yeah, and I just, you know, every time I think back at that call, I, 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 thank, I thank the baseball gods for our positioning in the broadcast booth. Because I've heard 
you know, Joe Buck's version of the call and the ESPN radio version of the call from the great Dan Shulman. And, th- and those guys are obviously Hall of Fame announcers, but they had a different vantage point than I did. They were a little further up the first baseline. I had the perfect view so that I could track the, the ball off the bat, the, the right field line, Springer going back. And so I had to read, like, in my mind, I'm going, oh, my God, he's not going to catch this. I think this is going to stay fair, and it looks like it's got distance. So there was never any kind of hesitation because sometimes when you get you know, a ball like that, you have to hesitate to see what's going to happen. But I had the perfect read and line on it the whole way. And then the, the fact that it hit the foul pole made it a much easier call than had it kind of curled around the foul pole. And you've got to, you've got to hold up and wait for the umpire who's going to think about it for three seconds before he twirls his finger. It's just like it was, it was, uh, it just worked out so perfectly for, for my positioning and how the ball was hit and to be able to follow it and track it to deliver the call the way it happened. Nats in Houston tonight to take on the Astros. Very different stakes, very different ball club, but the same broadcast crew, Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler on the call on the same station here on 106.7 The Fan. Well, I appreciate you coming on and reminiscing. I didn't plan on playing the, the highlights, so I apologize. It's like I read a columnist's columns to him uh, while you were here. I hope that yeah. wasn't too annoying, but uh, yeah, that was fun. No, it's, uh, I mean, nothing's annoying about reliving that. I mean, it's th- that whole, the whole run, the whole month has been, was the most special of my career from October 1st, uh, the night of the wild card game till October 30th. And then, and then the aftermath of that, the, the, the ensuing uh, you know, riding in the parade and just how special it was for the entire city and the, and the baseball community that's followed the nationals from, from 2005 to now. And, we, we await uh, further moments like that in the future, but uh, until that gets there, we can always enjoy those uh, those great memories. The highlight of that October for Jags was watching Danny eat his Sunday <laughs> that he made, and then all the baseball stuff was secondary, but also cool. Of course, of course. I mean, I, I can't. I, I hope they have a special pregame ceremony to to name the foul pole, the Kendrick pole. That's how we are going to refer. We have referred to it. Uh, I, I was watching a Twins-Astros game earlier this year, and Royce Lewis of the Twins hit one off the Kendrick pole. And I was <laughs> disappointed that the Ast- I'm watching the game, and the Astros broadcasters didn't reference the Kendrick pole. They just said it hit the foul pole. I said, no, that hit the Kendrick pole. Weird that they wouldn't name it that, you know? They don't yeah, a little weird, little so, weird. They don't but have that On same our broadcast juice. tonight, it's the Kendrick pole. I like it. Let's hope uh, Luis Garcia hits one off the Kendrick pole. Abs- somebody, absolutely. Jags, thank you, buddy. Good catching up. Take care, my friend. Enjoy Houston. The great Dave Jagler, what a great stroll down memory lane with him there. The Nationals back in Houston for the first time since they won the World Series. My final thought on busting loose baseball as we thank Dave Jagler for his time this week. Uh, College World Series this weekend. Remember, Dylan Skeens. uh, Dylan Skeens. That's the combination of the two great players at LSU. Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens, the outfielder, is going to bat leadoff, and the starting pitcher for the Tigers will be in action. So will uh, the top third player in college baseball in a consideration uh, for the Nationals as well, Wyatt Langford uh, at Florida. Um, if you are not into college baseball, now's a good time to get into college baseball. Uh, there are more high-end draft prospects in this year's a college World Series, the final eight team standing that have been in years and years and years. So going to be entertaining, and especially from a Nats perspective, both that number two overall pick and their second round selection you know, may well be playing in these games this weekend. Toby, you got a final thought? 
Yeah, just excited to see what Skeens can do on the mound. I mean, that's enough to tune in for right there. And then obviously seeing Cruz, seeing Langford, seeing what maybe the possibilities are there at number two, but especially seeing Paul Skeens on the mound. I mean, can't ask for much more than that. All right, thanks so much for listening, guys. For Toby and producer Darius, I'm Grant saying so long. That'll do it for episode 59 of Bustin' Loose Baseball.